0: Or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Uh, well, thank you, yeah, Andre. Encouraging to hear the update and just the opportunity that you guys had to go and visit. It's encouraging. Obviously, we all wish we could go. And worship together um, with Cornerstone Bible Church and with Bible Church of Little Rock. But just a blessing to be able to send you guys to go and share the work that the Lord's doing here. Um, yeah, thankful uh, for Alan and his faithfulness in serving us and preaching over the last few Sundays. Um, even this Sunday, or this sermon that I'm going to be sharing with you today, was supposed to be preached right before Christmas, but I was uh, really sick. I was in bed, and Alan uh, stepped up, and yeah, just thankful and just such a blessing for us to meditate on Christ and who he is. And we're going to continue uh, this mini-series that we've been doing on the incarnation of Christ, in the divine son and the human son. And Alan has done just a wonderful job over the last few weeks in leading us to gaze at Christ, to look at Jesus, our Messiah, and to see both his humanity and his divinity. We look together at a really a miraculous story uh, the last two Sundays of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, this humble young girl, and telling her that she would give birth to the promised Messiah. It's an incredible text and just precious truth that we've seen in the book of Luke over the last two weeks, to see the blessing that this news was to the Virgin Mary and the blessings that we ourselves have received through his miraculous birth. And this son who was born to Mary in Bethlehem is unlike any other. He was fully man and fully divine. Even last week, uh, I really enjoyed as we thought together on what it must have been like as Jesus grew and matured to think of this perfect, sinless child being cared for and protected by his parents and also maturing and gl- growing in knowledge and understanding the patience that he displayed, the humility and submitting to Mary and Joseph. It was just yeah, incredible to think about and more reason for us to worship our great king together. So now this Sunday, as we conclude this series... On the birth of Christ and on his incarnation, as we open God's word together, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 together, and I want to ask each one of us, do we understand why Jesus had to come to earth and be born as a baby in a manger? Do we know why the Son of God had to become a man? This is an important question. It's important for us to consider and crucial for us to have a thorough understanding of as believers. That's why we've spent the last three weeks together just thinking about this truth. Our understanding of who Jesus is affects every aspect of our lives as believers. And if we're going to worship him rightly, even as we sing these songs this morning, if we're going to worship him rightly for who he is, not only through the singing, but through our lives lived out, we have to understand why he became a man. We can't ignore this part of who he is as our Savior, and if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel day by day, whether it's at work or school, with our family, speaking to our neighbors, if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we have to understand the incarnation. And if we're going to tell others about Jesus, about our great Savior who has redeemed us and purchased us by His blood, we need to understand who He is—not only is in His divinity, but also in His humanity, about who He is as a man. And even in Jesus' day. You know this. There are many who did not understand who Jesus was. Many in that day, they didn't expect a humble baby born in a manger in Bethlehem or a gentle teacher riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Many expected a king, a powerful king, a warrior who would come and crush their enemies, destroy the Roman Empire, and establish their kingdom on earth. In the early church, there are many who were led astray by a false understanding of who Jesus was. An ancient heresy or false teaching called docetism. It was widespread in that day. False teachers said that Jesus only seemed to have a human body like us. He he wasn't really fully man. He was fully God, but he wasn't really fully man. He just appeared to be like a man. These false teachers couldn't imagine how Jesus, God, could take on weakness and flesh. And so they invented a man-made understanding of who Jesus is instead of submitting to his teaching and who he claimed to be. They tried to limit him to being fully God, but only partially man. Some of you might know if you're familiar uh, with the book of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. These books were written to people who were dealing with this false doctrine. And even though it is difficult for us to understand how God could become a man, the Incarnation is challenging for our limited minds to understand how Jesus, our King, could be both fully God and fully man simultaneously. We know this to be true, and we trust it to be true because it's clearly revealed to us in God's Word and it's foundational to our faith. And then there's the opposite error. So some people would say Jesus was completely God but only partially man. But there's many in the world today who say that Jesus was fully man, an incredible man, the ultimate man, but he was not God, not fully God. You might know this about Muslims that they know who Jesus is, they recognize he was unique as a teacher and as a prophet. They don't view him as God incarnate, but as one of the greatest of the prophets. There's many others in the world today who would say the same thing. They would say Jesus is a wonderful teacher, someone worth looking up to, that you can learn from, but not God. And they have not submitted to him as Lord of their life. There might be many around you, people you interact with on a weekly basis, who would claim to be Christians, but they don't understand who Jesus really is. People who care more about what self-appointed prophets and apostles have to say than what Jesus himself has to say. They know who Jesus is. They've read the scriptures. They've heard the stories. They acknowledge who he is. But they don't worship him for who he truly is and don't recognize him as Lord and God. So as you think about Jesus being born as a baby in a manger, you might have thought at some time, and I've, I've even thought this before, is Jesus taking on flesh? Is it really that important? Was there not another way? Does it matter that he was fully man? Why does it matter that Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem? Could there not have been another way? Could he not have just come down for a few weeks just to be crucified and then gone up to heaven? Or could he not have just paid the price for our redemption in another way? Since all of creation is his, why did he himself have to take on flesh and blood? So that's the question we're going to look at today. That's what I want us to consider as we open the book of Hebrews and look together and see in our passage, what was the purpose of the Incarnation? Why did the Son of God become a man? So I want you to work through this with me each week as we gather together as Pastor Andre or Pastor Alan or myself or anyone else is preaching. You should be actively engaged in studying God's Word. I remember Pastor Josh would often talk about it. He'd say, okay, here's our passage. And he would say, I want to hear some pages flipping. He wanted us to be opening our Bibles and looking together. And you shouldn't Just come on Sunday morning, just sit back and accept every word that comes out of my mouth. But you should examine the scriptures, like the Bereans, if you're familiar with the Bereans. These were early Christians who were well known for their love of God's word and their faithfulness in study and diligence. In uh, the book of Acts, it says, They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were eager to receive truth and excited for sound teaching, but they recognized that the only true authority comes from God. From his word. So as they listened, as they heard teaching, they examined the scriptures, they opened their Bibles to see whether what they were being taught is true. So any word that's spoken from this pulpit on a Sunday morning, it's not inerrant, but only what is said that aligns with God, God's word is true. My only authority today in speaking to you comes from God's word, and it comes from us accurately understanding God's word together. So let's open our Bibles together, we'll pray now, and then we'll look at Hebrews chapter 2. God, as we Gather this morning to open your word together, to look at your word, to understand more of our blessed Savior, to understand who he was, being fully God and fully man. Help us to slow down now. Help us to be like the Bereans, faithful students of your word. Help us to be devoted to the study of your word, recognizing it is where we receive truth. It's our source of truth. God, help us not to shy away from difficult realities like the Incarnation, challenging doctrines, but to delight in how complex you are and how incredible you are. We wouldn't want to worship a God who could be easily created by human minds, but we want to worship you for who you truly are as you reveal yourself in your word. God, we pray that you would guard us against error. Help us not to be so prideful to assume that people that were led away by false teaching were foolish or not as wise as we are. But help us to recognize the danger of false teaching, the danger of different heresies, and to be rooted and grounded in your word so that we're ready to combat false teaching and to defend the faith that you've given to us. pray that you would be glorified in all that's said and done today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's open in our Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 2. The passage we're going to be looking at, uh, the specific verses are Hebrews 2, sorry, Hebrews 2, instead of Romans. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15. And so as you turn uh, to that passage, I want you to be thinking about this question. So what is the significance of God becoming a man? Why does it matter to us here today in Pretoria, 2,000 years later, that he took on flesh and was born as a baby? So Hebrews 2. Sorry for the confusion. Let's read together, starting in verse 10. We'll read through verse 15, we'll focus our time in verses 14 and 15. The book of Hebrews it was written for two primary purposes, to encourage the church who is under suffering and persecution, and also challenge them to not abandon their faith in Christ. In the passage we're going to be looking at today, verses 14 and 15, it fits into both of those purposes. Jesus, the Son of God, taking on flesh, gives us encouragement and the strength to stand firm in the faith in which we believe, and reminds us of who our faith is in part of the reason I read uh, those verses leading up to it is I want you to notice the word that is used for believers. So there at the end of verse 13, and then also in verse 14, notice the word that is used there to refer to us as believers. Since, therefore, the children. I want us to stop there and just think about what this means. We are described as the children. Since, therefore, the children. This isn't just a word we should skim over. It's not a normal or ordinary term. Maybe you noticed that. It's not a normal word used to describe believers in the New Testament, the children. And even for us, we don't often use it when talking about other believers. We might refer to someone as brother or sister, but we talk about a church, the members of our church, we talk about the children. Really, this is a sweet, it's a sweet and loving term of care and affection for those who God has redeemed, the children of God. It's a close and intimate term for someone who the writer and God have a specific love for. If you're a parent, you can understand this, or all of you have parents. But the love for you have for your children is unique and special. In those sweet times of speaking to your children at the dinner table, hearing about their day, spending time with them and seeing how they grow and develop, when they tell you that they love you as you put them in bed at night, when you comfort them when they're sick or hurt. There's a unique love that you have for your children that you do not have for others. And this is the way that God describes his attitude towards us as believers. And this love and care for the children, it's speaking not of all humans, but specifically of those who God has chosen and loved. There's other passages that might come to your mind where we see believers referred to as children. Like John 1, 11 through 12, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This shows the particular care that God has for those who believed in his name. Those who were waiting for a ruling king to ride triumphantly into Jerusalem, many of them ultimately rejected him. The same crowds who gathered as he entered into the city, they would later call for his crucifixion. They were not his children. But if you have seen Jesus for who he is and have believed in him... He calls you his child. And what an incredible love this is. We know that apart from God working in our hearts, we would not receive and we wouldn't have believed in him, but he has chosen us, opened our eyes, and now we are children of God. We're uniquely cared for and loved and protected. Another passage that speaks this is in the book of 1 John, where it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of god and so we are what a blessing what an encouragement that god's love for you as a believer it's not an impersonal or distant love where he saves you and then sets you over there and he's removed and not involved in your life he doesn't save us and then leave us on our own to figure things out but he has a particular care and attention and love towards us that's so far beyond what we can imagine And this love, it's not flawed like our love for our children is. There's not a hint of frustration or bitterness or distraction. God's love for his children is perfect. And believer, if you are a child of God, his love for you is perfect. His love for you is boundless and constant and unchanging. One of the ways that we see this love for the children of God is through Jesus taking on a human body, taking on flesh and blood. Let's look at the rest of verse 14. It says, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So we, the children, we share in flesh and blood. I think you can understand what this means, to share in flesh and blood. It's just speaking to what it means to be human. You know, you see your human body, you can understand some of what it means for Jesus to take on human form, flesh and blood. You have weaknesses, you have aches and pains, you experience sickness, And suffering, tiredness, and exhaustion. You share in flesh and blood, all of us in this room. And we wish it wasn't this way. For those of us who have repented and put our hope in Christ, we have a new heart. God has redeemed our soul, but He has not yet redeemed our bodies. That's what we're waiting for, we're hoping for. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had a quote on this He said, We know what it is to be partakers of flesh and blood. We often wish that we did not. It is the flesh that drags us down. It is the flesh that brings us a thousand sorrows. I have a converted soul, but an unconverted body. Christ has healed my soul, but he has left my body still to a large extent in bondage. And therefore, it has still to suffer, but the Lord will redeem even that. It's so true. Each of us, even though we have been given a new and everlasting hope, we are still walking in these fallen bodies. We share in flesh and blood. Should make us long for Christ to return, for the flesh and blood of our fallen bodies to be taken away, for our faith to be made sight, and for us to walk free of all sin and suffering and pain and death, where there'll be no more mourning or weeping, and where He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And as we see the realities of the weakness of our bodies, of our flesh, we also see what more of what this means for Jesus to take on flesh by coming as a man he himself likewise partook of the same things he purposely took on flesh and blood you can notice it's it's not the same word even in our english translation so the children share in flesh and blood and he partook of the same things partook is kind of a funny word it's not one we often use but you could see it as he took flesh and blood on. He willingly became the same things that we share in flesh and blood, took on their attributes, took on an earthly body, intentionally, purposely. Every other birth, every other child who's born, they didn't have a choice. They share in flesh and blood. They're born in the weakness of humanity. At the moment of our conception, we share in flesh and blood and have a human nature. But Jesus, in his human birth, he took on flesh and blood as an act of sacrifice, as an act of love. He deliberately determined to take on flesh and blood, this weakness, to take on a human nature. And what did this mean for him? This means he experienced suffering. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He needed physical protection. We also know that he sweat drops of blood. He experienced pain and suffering. John 1. Another of the key passages on the Incarnation says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in that chapter, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word, Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Incarnate Word, the Son of God, who existed in eternity past, who was there in the beginning at the time of creation, this perfect divine being took on human flesh and weakness. And as we consider this truth, think of what a sacrifice this was. The all powerful, eternal, all knowing Son of God leaving the throne room of heaven and willingly taking on humanity, taking on flesh and blood, taking on our weakness. What incredible love! It's determination, it's humility. So remember the question we asked at the beginning. Why did the Son of God have to become a man? What was the purpose of the Incarnation? Jesus became man so that he could relate to us in our humanity. He willingly took on flesh for us. We don't have time to look at it in depth, but if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 2, look down at verses 17 and 18. Another beautiful passage. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priests in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, because Jesus willingly took on flesh and blood, he is able to empathize with our weaknesses, to understand the temptation that we experience, and to intercede before God for us as our high priest. In Israel's day, the high priest could only enter into God's presence, into the Holy of Holies, one day per year, on the Day of Atonement. And even then, he did it with fear and with trembling as a weak and sinful human. But now, our high priest, who willingly took on flesh, is in the throne room of God, not with hesitation, but with confidence, as our perfect Redeemer and our majestic high priest. And we can have complete confidence Because we have a mediator who's gone before us, who can plead our case with the Father. And he's not far off and removed, he's not distant as our advocate. But he's someone who understands our suffering and pain. He knows our weaknesses. A high priest who willingly took on flesh to understand those who would advocate for before the Father. Who can relate to us in every way, and he's now before God on our behalf the doctrine of Jesus' humanity, him taking on flesh and blood, this isn't just a nice theological point for us to understand and then feel smarter about, or something for us to argue with someone on Facebook about. Jesus being fully man is a precious truth, something that can sustain our souls and our faith in the trials of life. Whenever we face trials, we're fearful of death, we have a personal refuge in Jesus, who is our Savior. We can go to him without hesitation knowing that we have a perfect high priest who understands our weaknesses. He suffered in the flesh and was triumphant. So as we consider the incarnation in Jesus' birth, let's continually remind ourselves, remind one another that Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he could know our weaknesses. Then, continuing on there in verse 14, to sense therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So that word that tells us this is the purpose in our passage today. The reason why Jesus took on flesh and blood, he took on humanity so that through death he could destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver... All of those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He came and was born as a baby in a manger to destroy death once and for all, to destroy Satan's power. He came to fulfill the promise of the gospel all the way back in Genesis 3:15, where it was promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus took on flesh and was born as a man so that he could crush the head of the serpent and once and for all free us from his power. And in the same verse, more specifically, Jesus was born as a man so that he could die. So how would he destroy the one who has the power of death? Through his own death. What an incredible picture that. Christ, he would not come to conquer as a warrior king like many of the people expected, but he came to suffer and save as a perfect and sinless sacrifice. The purpose of Christ's incarnation, the purpose of his birth, the reason why he took on flesh is so that he could die. Jesus, if he was fully God alone, he couldn't die. He could not be killed. God cannot die. And so his willful taking on of a human flesh and blood enabled him to accomplish this ultimate task of suffering and dying to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, to redeem me and to redeem you. Another reason why Christ became a man is because blood had to be shed. Jesus had to be fully human because God's design for redemption was that through the shedding of blood, sins would be covered. In the Old Testament, we know they sacrificed animals, but this was a temporary, it was insufficient. The blood of bulls and goats could never redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, took on human flesh and sacrificed, laid down his life for the sheep. He shed his human blood to cover the sins of all who would ever believe in him. If he were not human... This would have been impossible. But now, because of his death, we are covered by his blood. We are clothed in robes of righteousness because of his sacrifice. So if you're looking, one thing just to notice about this verse, if you're looking at it, it says, So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. You might be wondering, wait, when was Satan destroyed? Did I miss something? And this translation maybe isn't the most helpful in our English Bibles because we know that Satan has not been destroyed. He's not been completely defeated yet. We know he's still alive and active in this world. In 1 Peter, we, we know it's a familiar passage. It says, Be self controlled and vigilant, for your enemy, the devil, is always about prowling like a lion roaring for its prey. He's not dead, and he's still our enemy. But what could this mean? Maybe a better way for us to understand it today is that through Christ's death, he destroyed Satan's power. Not for everyone, but for the Christian, Satan's power has been taken away, completely removed. Because the power that Satan has is the power of death. Satan knows that because of sin, the punishment for that sin is death. It has to be death. And he wants nothing more than for every person to die and receive the consequences for their sin. His power is in the death that each man must face. Because once a man dies, the opportunity for salvation is gone. This is a terrifying reality, that those who die in their sin will face an eternal judgment. This is where Satan's power lies. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And if you're here today, and you've never received forgiveness for your sins, this same terror is real for you today. Satan still holds power over you. When you die, you will stand before God and be called to give an account. You're living under the law. And because God is perfectly just, he must punish sin. And if your hope is in yourself, if your hope is in the good works that you do, or anything apart from the blood of Christ who took on flesh and blood, the sacrifice that he paid on the cross, then death still has power over you. Satan is still in power over you. This is why Jesus took on flesh and blood. This is why he was born in a manger. Why the Son of God would humble himself, come down from the throne room of heaven to be born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And through his sacrifice, through his blood which was shed, forgiveness is offered. The power of Satan has been destroyed. All that is required is to repent and believe in him. The Father is standing with arms open wide, waiting to receive those who have been purchased by the blood of his Son. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So come to Him today. Jesus is the only true Redeemer. It would be nothing more beautiful than for you to recognize the price that was paid. See the sacrifice of Jesus taking on flesh and blood for you. And put your hope in Him alone. That's why Jesus became a man. That's why he took on flesh and blood, to destroy Satan's power. We know one day Satan will be ultimately defeated. For each of us as believers, he holds no ultimate authority over us now because the power of death has been destroyed. His sway over us is gone. And quote from John Piper on this, he said, "...the one deadly power in Satan's artillery is unforgiven sin. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because of their own sin." And all Satan can do is fight to keep you sinning and to keep you away from the one who forgives sin. Because if your sin is forgiven and the wrath of God Almighty is turned away from you, then the devil is disarmed. The one deadly lethal tactic he has is to accuse you of sin and keep you sinning, and to keep you away from Christ who forgives sin and removes the wrath of God. If your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you and you stand righteous before God in Jesus Christ by faith... And God is for you and not against you, then the devil is rendered powerless. He cannot destroy you. What a precious truth. For those of us who have been purchased by his blood, the incarnation is so important. And this is what he means when he says the devil has been destroyed. His power has been completely taken away by Christ's sacrifice. We're free from the fear of death. Satan cannot touch us. And because Satan's power has been crushed, we can face trials and difficulties in life without fear. The psalmist in Psalm 23, where he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus had to come to become a man, to take on flesh and blood, to destroy Satan's hold on us. Him taking on flesh, the purpose of the incarnation was to remove Satan's power from those he loved, to take away the power of death over us. Christ came to earth and became a man so that he could die for those he loved. So that you can empathize with our weaknesses as one who has been suffered, who has suffered and been tempted in every way, like we are. And through his death, he defeated him who has the power of death. He destroyed Satan's authority and removed his control over us. And also through his death, he's defeated the power and the fear of death. Look there in our passage. Together, let's continue reading. It says he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Do so you remember how we spoke earlier? How Satan's power, Satan's hold over us, is because of the power of death. Because the right and just punishment for our sin is death, and so his hold over us is because of the death that each man must face and receive the consequences for their sin. But now, we who have been purchased by God through the blood of Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. Romans eight fourteen and 15, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are the children of God now. We have been adopted and purchased by the blood of Christ. There's no more fear of death for those who are in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin, slaves to ourselves, slaves to death and to fear. All this because Christ took on flesh for you, because he suffered for you and died for you. He's charted a path through the storm clouds that we see ahead. We as believers, we can look to the end of our life here on earth, and we can look at it with hope, with expectation that this sinful earthly body will be cast off and we will be free. We can say like the Apostle Paul, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can be men and women who are free from the fear of death. We can see that the death, that death and the grave and Satan have no ultimate authority over us. The grave has been defeated. But we can say, oh death, where is your sting? So as we consider what this passage means for us today, as we reflect on Jesus taking on flesh and defeating death for us, first, we can take heart. Death has lost its sting. Through Christ's death, the fear of death has been defeated. We can now look at death, not with fear, but with hope. The only thing that we'll lose is our sinful, fallen bodies. And we will receive glorified bodies that are much better than this. All of this because of Christ's incarnation. We will be with Him for eternity in glory. Because the Son of God took on flesh for us. And as believers, we really can. We can truly face death without wavering. It's not by our own strength, but by looking to Him and depending on Him. If you're here today, and this seems... Inconceivable. You're not sure if your hope is truly in Christ and you're afraid of death. Consider the offer that Jesus brings to come, to bring your sin and your burdens and your weaknesses and to look to Him, to repent and believe. For us as believers, this is truly it's a miraculous hope that we have that our sin has been paid for and our hope is secure. Not only does the incarnation give us boldness in the face of death, it also gives us comfort in the trials of life, that we have a merciful and great high priest who walked this earth as a man. When you're tempted to depend on your own strength in the dark valleys of life, run to him. Remember that he, our Savior, he has suffered, he's been tempted, he's endured, and he understands and knows your weaknesses. He's near to us. He's not distant, far off, and removed, but he cares for us as his children. And as we've reflected over the last few weeks on both Jesus' deity and also his his humanity. Hopefully your heart has grown in your love for him and who he is. We've worshipped and praised him for who he is and what he's done. But also we should see how precious the good news of the gospel is that we have to share. What an opportunity we have, each one of us as believers, to introduce others to the most lovely person, the most incredible man in history, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In the gospel, it's not just an exclusive message for us to come and talk about on Sunday mornings, but one that we're called to take to the ends of the earth, to go to others and say, Look, you see how wonderful Jesus is. How incredible my Savior is. Come and worship him with me. In closing, I want to read a quote uh, from one author, just summarizing how worthy of worship our Savior is. It says, Jesus is in a category all by himself. Given who God is and all his glory and moral perfection, and what sin is before God, apart from the Son's incarnation and his entire work for us, there's no salvation. As the divine Son, he alone satisfies God's own judgment against us and the demand for perfect obedience. As the incarnate Son, he alone can identify with us as our representative and substitute. Our salvation hope for the payment of our sin And our full restoration as God's image bears is only accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He alone is our hope. What an incredible Savior we have, a perfect high priest, our sovereign Lord, and our precious friend. Let's close and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you just humbled by who you are. Thank you for sending your Son to take on flesh, to be born as a baby in the manger. Thank you for choosing us and loving us, even before the dawn of time. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for humbling yourself, taking on flesh and blood and coming to earth. What humility, what incredible grace. Thank you for sacrificing your life through your death on the cross and through your death on the cross, defeating Satan, removing the fear of death for us giving us a hope that we can cling to in the darkest of days. God, we thank you that through your ascension, through being raised from the dead, being seated now at the right hand of the Father, that you intercede for us as our great high priest, who understands and knows our weaknesses, who's pleading with us before the throne. And God, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, not leaving us alone alone, giving us your word and your spirit to open our eyes to behold the truths of the gospel. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a guide. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Help us to grasp the freedom that we have in Christ, not walking in ignorance and in fear, but in recognizing the salvation that has been purchased for us, seeing that sin and death have been defeated, that the power of Satan has been removed. God, give us boldness, Give us a confidence, not in ourselves or in our own strength, our own abilities, but a confidence and a boldness because of what Christ has done for us, because of the salvation that has been purchased for us, because our Savior took on flesh and blood for us. God, help us not to just keep these truths for ourselves. Help us not to just sit here on Sunday mornings and to think that we're the only ones that need to hear of this, but help us to be bold witnesses you. Help us to see that there is a world waiting, longing for truth. A world of people who, over whom Satan still holds power. Death still holds power. But thank you that we have been given a message that can free the sinner. That can give hope to the hopeless and open the eyes of the blind. I pray that you would give us hearts that are filled with worship for who you are and what you've done. Pray that as we spend time meditating on who you are, and Jesus, taking on flesh, being fully God, fully man, will help us have hearts that are filled with worship and to praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.